Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Andre Gonoella, being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal, as always. And today we're delighted to be joined by Anya Emanuel. She is a former diplomat, author, and advisor on emerging markets, and co-founded the international strategic consulting firm Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel, LLC, with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. Formerly an attorney at Wilmer Hale, working on issues around corporate governance and international business, Anya served at the State Department working on South Asia policy. She is currently the director of the Aspen Strategy Group and Aspen Security Forum, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and her expertise on foreign policy and technology is sought after by so many in the media. Her critically acclaimed book, published in 2016, This Brave New World focuses on the rise of India and China and will be a basis for much of the interview today. Anya, we're so happy to be joined by you. Thank you so much for coming. So happy to be here. Thank you all for doing this podcast. It's a great initiative. So Anya, uh, Ryan here, I just want to thank you once again for joining us. Uh, I want to begin with some context to talk about India and China's place, the geopolitics, because we, you know, both of these countries, India and China, have fascinating histories steeped in a lot of change, of course, both colonialism um, in both these countries. And so with the, the recent humiliation up into you know, the mid 20th century, how do these countries view themselves, their kind of their positioning in the global world? Um, and, and how has that kind of changed over time? That's a very important place to start. Thanks, Ryan. Um, you know, historically, China has been one of the greatest powers on earth the seat of civilization, the richest and most advanced country for a number of periods in its 5,000 year history. It also emphasizes, especially Xi Jinping has done a lot of this. You saw it yesterday in his speech to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. He emphasizes how much China was mistreated by the West. So in the 19th century, it was a pretty closed society, a declining uh, imperial power. It shunned Western technology and culture. And then through the opium wars against Britain and several other Western powers, what the Chinese called the unequal treaties were foisted on them, where they were forced to give up um, ports around the country, including famously Hong Kong. And the Chinese Communist Party now basically describes itself as the number one power that brought China back onto the center of the world stage where it belongs. Now, it glosses over some of its own history, as you saw in Xi's speech yesterday. You know, he talked about the Communist Party winning the Japanese War of Aggression. That's what we call World War II. Well, it turns out, actually, it was mostly the Kuomintang, <laughs> which then fled to Taiwan, that won that war with help from the United States. You know, that's conveniently left out of the Communist Party narrative. They leave out things like, uh, the Great Famine, <laughs> the Cultural Revolution, Tiananmen Square. But you're so right to focus on that because basically if you look at Xi Jinping's and the other senior leaders' speeches, when you look at the museums that you travel to in China, it's all about this theme of we were oppressed by the West and we're now coming back to center stage where we belong. It's important to start there because it impacts so much of what the Chinese do on the world stage. Now, let me turn to India, slightly different. Obviously, India also ancient civilization, multicultural, multi-religious, 415 languages, over 100 million Muslims, even though they're a minority in India, it's still one of the largest Muslim communities on earth. 
And they also were oppressed by the West. In fact, I think you could argue that India suffered more under colonialism than China did, but they have taken a different view of their past. You know, Jawaharlal Nehru, who was the first prime minister of independent India, famously said, India isn't fettered by the past and by our old enmities. We have no bitterness even against our former rulers. And that's a very important cultural difference. So you don't see Indian rulers right now. You have Modi, who's more of a nationalist, but you don't hear this chip on the shoulder um, type of message that you get from the Chinese. Definitely. I fear and I feel like this fear of foreign exploitation or this past history of past uh, foreign exploitation it might have shaped China's assertiveness today and India's sort of goals for its own autonomy. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what I was just saying. You you can see it in Xi's speeches, but you can also see it in how China acts. You know, the recent um, previous Chinese leaders, especially Deng Xiaoping, used to always say, "Hide and bide." China is going to hide its growth and bide its time, and slowly will emerge on the world stage. Well, Xi Jinping scrapped that whole policy. So some of the really aggressive moves you're seeing up on the Himalayan border, where over the past several years, especially last year, there were big skirmishes with the Indians. We'll put that aside. I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, They're increasing aggressiveness in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and very dangerously in recent months, constant provocations by the Chinese in the Strait of Taiwan, scrambling jets against the Taiwanese, Um, very assertive foreign policy in a way that you would not have seen from any other Chinese leader. And it stems straight from this feeling mistreated and having to come back onto onto center stage, if you will. So your book, This Brave New World, published in 2016, focuses on the U.S., India, and China. And folks, it's a great book. It's a great primer on the rise of India and China. And uh, Anya, I really appreciate how you structured each chapter, each chapter focusing on a particular issue area, and then sort of closing off with a recommendation for how U.S.-based entities uh, can approach these issues with India and China. But something I noticed uh, quite a bit uh, throughout the book was that you had a lot of views for optimistic paths. And now it's been five years since the since the book was published, and we've seen a lot of assertiveness on China. We've seen, you know, considerable political dynamics in India. Are we still wringing our hands with China and underestimating India? Has your view for an optimistic path changed substantially over five years? Yeah, I'm glad you started there. Unfortunately, it really has. And, you know, five years is eons in the history of a political science book. And, you know, I'm just flipping through my introduction in preparation for this a couple minutes ago. Maybe I'll just read a tiny bit of what the pessimistic scenario was, which I argue in the book is avoidable if the Chinese, Indians and Americans govern ourselves wisely and choose a different path. Now, that's not at all what's happened. I won't read the whole passage, but the pessimistic scenario I said would China's demand for resources causes it to ally with resource-rich countries around the world, propping up dictators and exploiting the the population. Um, Russia has become a junior partner in a China-Russia partnership that confronts American policy at every turn. There's constant um, low-level cyber conflict. On and on and on. (laughs) China has reabsorbed Hong Kong and is trying to coerce Taiwan. 
it's just so depressing <laughs> that this in 2016 or actually end of 2015, when I wrote the book, was considered my imagination of what would be one worst case scenario. And a lot of that stuff is starting to play itself out. Now, of course, we don't have a hot war with China. That is not at all inevitable. And it is not in anybody's interest for either the US or China to continue to be so belligerent. But boy, neither Xi Jinping nor President Trump have made it particularly easy to choose an alternative um, rise and a more cooperative path. And, and I just want to be really clear here. When I talk to my friends in China, they place the blame entirely on President Trump. And there is some responsibility. It was a much more belligerent administration. But a lot of this really comes from Xi Jinping in the ways that we just described. This feeling that China has been wronged and has to be really aggressive on the world stage. I think that's something that she would have done no matter who was ruling the United States. So Anya, you, you know, you mentioned how uh, they may be viewing the United States. And I want to dig in this to a, a bit more because a lot of times we take our Western perspective and think about, you know, what China might be thinking, what India might be thinking. But but how does China and India view us from the elite level? So the government their views, both senior leaders and also emerging leaders, and then also the public, right? Because these publics, um, you know, in, in India, it's certainly quite different than in China. The public has far more agency in India uh, than China. But how did they view the United States? Yeah, it's a very good point. And, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that we in the U.S. tend to see India and China by what they do to us, how they interact with us on the world stage. But there's so much going on inside both of those countries that has nothing to do with that. And I know we'll get into it later in the podcast. They're just trying to feed their own people, solve their own in income inequality, <laughs> their own, shore up their social safety net, solve their environmental problems. And I know we'll get to those. So um, let me start with India because we've been talking more about China. I think the Indian people are by and large very positively disposed towards the United States. There is a huge amount of positive interaction. Look, I live in Silicon Valley. You know, many of our most iconic American tech firms are run by Indian Americans, from Microsoft to Adobe to Google, right? <laughs> the list goes on and on. So um, I tell this story in the book of a of a dinner that where Modi came to visit the US and he had a dinner in Silicon Valley. And, you know, everyone was just friends. The Americans and the Indians were chatting. You couldn't get anyone to sit down for Modi to start a speech. It was super friendly. Two weeks later was a dinner hosted by Xi Jinping in Seattle with the American business community. It was cordial, but it was much stiffer. It was stiffer from the Chinese side and from the American side. We're just not as comfortable with each other. So from the Indian perspective, I think most Indians have a very positive view of the U.S. Now, that's tempered a little by this. Historically, India was the, the center of the non-aligned movement, not taking part in the great power struggle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And so when you talk to older Indian diplomats, they still have that hesitation about cooperating with China. I saw this a lot when I was negotiating a treaty with the Indians way back about a decade ago when I served in the U.S. government, that's not really present in the younger generation. It's pretty positive. It wants better ties. They're all for the quad. We'll talk about these things in a minute. China, I think the view towards the U.S. is changing rapidly, and it's influenced by what they're hearing from their leaders 
in the same way that America's views to China has just, it's been a sea change in the past four years. <laughs> so the kind of book that I wrote in 2016, you almost couldn't write now in the US. It would be seen as panda hugging, too pro-China, um, too willing to cooperate. And you know, as I said, a lot of the responsibility there is Xi Jinping with his tougher policies, but it actually happens on both sides. So I have never seen a faster change in consensus towards a country as what happened with a kind of foreign policy elite towards China in the past four or five years, just a much, much more negative view. On the Chinese side, not quite as pronounced, but similar. Xi Jinping is clearly exploiting nationalism in ways that we've already talked about. And you also see that when you do um, opinion surveys of the younger generation, like the millennials, you guys in China, they're the most nationalistic generation that China has. Those who are older, like me, who maybe were very young or children when Tiananmen Square happened, still remember that maybe the communist regime isn't doing so well. The older people grew up under the Cultural Revolution. They grew up in an era where China was dirt poor and they just wanted to make some money. The young people are really patriotic, nationalistic, and they really buy into this. It's time for China to take its seat again at the center of the world. Yeah, and I think so much of that has to do with lived memories and lived histories and so on. And I mean, one of the questions I had sort of throughout reading the book uh, was whether many of these opportunities for, for cooperation by issue area that you had are still viable amidst what seem to be more and more gaping divergences with China. And now I sort of want to run through some of these issue areas. Uh, first, I want to sort of touch on income disparity, uh, because we've seen income disparity define India and China's economy in significantly different ways. Is it in the U.S.'s interest to help reduce income inequality within these two countries amidst, I mean, we've had these conversations about trade wars, uh, job outsourcing, and so on. Is it in our interest to actually help these countries address income inequality? Yes, it's absolutely in our interest for these countries to be stable, prosperous, peaceful societies, whether that means less discrimination, less income inequality, all of the different subjects that I discuss in the book and some of which we'll go through here. Um, the question now is, do those countries want our help in those areas? And that may be different from where it was five years ago. And how much can we affect what's going on inside? In some areas we can, and in some we can't. So let me just talk about income inequality. Um, poverty is still a much bigger issue in India than in China. China has lifted many millions more out of poverty. Xi Jinping yesterday declared that extreme poverty is basically over in China, and he is right. Um, India still has 70 million people living under this incredibly low extreme poverty line of about $2 a day. China has virtually no one there. So, and that's changed even since I published the book, right? So China is doing better on that metric. Um, let me just tell you one story that sort of exemplifies how those two are handling it differently. So for the book, I spent a week in one of the slums outside of Delhi. It's actually a neighborhood that has a lot of intimacy. People really get along. You could really sense the community there. All the streets were swept perfectly clean, but there's no electricity. There's no running water. And almost everyone makes their living by every morning 
climbing a 300 meter, like three football fields high trash dump and collecting the recyclables from the deli dump and selling them to recyclers. Okay. They are in the informal economy. These people are very hard to help. So what has India done? They put in place under the last government, Manmohan Singh, a biometric ID scheme called Adhar, which is really doing wonders. So instead of paying some corrupt official to get the food subsidy that they're due where everything's, you now just scan your irises and your fingerprints and the government says, oh, you get this much subsidy or it goes straight to your bank account. So they're working on that. But the fact that so much of India is in the informal sector means income inequality is much harder to eradicate. What does urban poverty look like in China? I wasn't allowed to go in, but one of an amazing Stanford researcher, a PhD student gave me some of her interviews that she had done of Indian, sorry, Indian, Chinese workers who work in those giant electronics factories that assemble all of our, you know, iPhones and iPads and other electronics. And it's not a slum. People live in dorms, sometimes eight people to a room. It's not luxurious by any means, but there's electricity, there's heat in the winter, there's a rec room with a ping pong table, and most importantly, there's a paycheck. So when the Chinese government wants to increase its social safety net, which they've done substantially over the past eight years, they can do so. They can add a pension, they can add healthcare subsidies, all of those things. And so that's one of the reasons that Chinese urban poverty is not as extreme as it is in India. Now, to your point, should the US help? Of course, to the extent we can. How much can we? Frankly, probably not that much. These are domestic issues that each of these countries need to deal with. And I think most Americans who are listening to this podcast and others would agree that at this point, we have a huge income inequality problem in our own country. So realistically, we'll probably fixate on that and try to solve that problem before we help the rest of the world. So Anya, a related issue is corruption. The prevalence of corruption in India and China are, are a bit different. And they're also, you know, how, how the government kind of plays in is also different. Um, but from the United States perspective, of course, the State Department and USAID in particular play crucial roles in anti-corruption work. Um, but from the U.S. perspective, I, I guess the question is, can, should, and, and could we help with these anti-corruption efforts, um, is it is it something that will actually benefit us? Because of course, U.S. firms are heavily invested in India and China, and if we don't combat corruption, it has impacts not only for these firms but also U.S. Uh, consumers. On corruption, we can help at the margins, and we should, and we do. So the United States and the U.K. have some of the toughest anti-corruption laws on the books of anyone in the world, and they don't apply just to American and UK European companies doing business in, in our own countries, but they apply to our companies doing business anywhere. It's called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. It's an excellent law. It's now being implemented in similar ways in lots of countries around the world. And it says, basically, if you're an American company, you're not gonna bribe people. I don't care if you're doing business in India, in South Africa, in Argentina, you're not gonna bribe or you can be prosecuted here. And frankly, it works pretty well. And by and large, anecdotally from the companies I work with, American corporates are cleaner on average than even some of their European competitors, like the French always come up and, you know, are they bribing to get this contract in the energy sector or the defense sector? There's never any actual evidence, but, you know, the rumors are there. And it helps us, frankly, it helps our companies 
because we're known, the case I know best is India, we're known to be clean. So we don't get asked for bribes. They're like, well, you know, IBM can't buy a bribe, so we won't even ask them, right? And it spurs some of those countries to do more on their side. Now, can we revamp everything China and India are doing with respect to anti-corruption? Of course not. But making sure that our people and our companies behave appropriately, I think is a good way to start. So in your book, you note uh, a big problem in terms of demographics and population, um, that India has a significantly growing younger population and China has a large growing older population. How severe is the actual problem when we're looking at sustainability in the economy? For example, the job market in India with a lot of young people coming in and then in China, sort of, I guess, the social services burden that comes with having a lot of older folks uh, being there. And I know the book sort of calls for U.S.-based entities to assist and invest in Chinese hospitals, retirement communities, and insurance, uh, while for India, uh, you know, we had to invest more, I think, economically. But how do we justify this uh, to our population at home? Yeah. Many of whom have these same sort of healthcare concerns and issues. Absolutely. It's a real, the demographic trends are real and they're stark. So by 2030, you know, nine short years from now, about 70% of India's population will be working age. That's usually a great thing for a country For a country, when you get what's called the demographic dividend because you've got so many more people working than you have old people to take care of or young people to take care of. And you can really see an economic takeoff. Now, that only happens if you can educate all those people and you can find jobs for all those people. So in terms of suggestions I make in the chapter for the US, it's not that we should do that for India. It's that these are actually good business opportunities for Americans wanting to invest in education and skills and job training, all of those types, maybe moving some of the big electronics assembly from China to elsewhere, like India, you're seeing a lot of that already happening. So we can help in ways that actually are really good for us and good for American business and American people as well. China, just as you said, has the opposite problem. By 2030, less than half of the Chinese population will be of working age. Because of this one-child policy, most people in the middle, sort of my age group, have you know, four grandparents, four parents to take care of, <laughs> eight grandparents, and these days, one or two or sometimes even three children because the one-child policy is over, right? So this is the, the group that's really squeezed. And it's squeezing consumption a little bit. So instead of spending that extra money on a vacation, you probably save every dime in case grandma needs to go to the hospital. And so the suggestion I make there for the U.S. is, again, that the U.S. government should solve that problem for China. It's that good investments in China might include elder care, housing, health care, you know, things of that sort. So these are big um, issues. Let me just say one more thing. When people write about demographic trends, they often bemoan it. And the solution is, oh, my gosh, everyone should have more children. But I think we're going to get to the environment next. And I may be an outlier in this view, but. Yeah, obviously forcing people, you know, forced sterilization or forcing people to only have one child is not the right way to go. But overall, we're not going to solve climate change or any of these other giant worldwide problems if we keep growing the population. So I wish the news media would stop talking about it as a problem and say it's it's a it's it's the thing that's going to be complex in the transition. But ultimately, we all need to get to societies where we have 
of fewer children, maybe just replacement. And China finally has done the world, it's done itself a, 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 a disfavor because the one child policy was so distortive of their own community, but it's done a world a great favor because if there were 2 billion Chinese, we would really have an even worse problem with climate change than we do already. I'm glad you brought up climate change because we do want to talk about the environment and it's one of the greatest challenges of our time. And the United States has committed itself to addressing climate change in a very meaningful way. Um, but with India and China, you know, that and the US, they're the three largest polluters in the world. They're, there are different views in all of these countries about how to address it, the impacts of climate change, and also the impacts of actually addressing climate change. Because for developing countries, right, I mean, it has a very different economic impact than it would on, say, a developed country. And so, um, it, at least in India, right, I mean, there's this view that the Paris Climate Accord um, is, is, you know, more beneficial uh, for, for other countries and maybe not their own country. And so, uh, Anya, I'm just curious what your, your view is when you're looking at India and China, this triangle, India, China, U.S. triangle, um, is, is this kind of push to address climate change more beneficial for developed over developing countries? And is Paris climate, is, is that the right way to go about it? Let me tell two quick stories that illustrate how I think China and India see the environment and you know, climate change issues. So it, people always talk about the pollution in China and, and you know it's impossible to go jogging when you're in Beijing, all of those things that you know. Uh, but actually the Chinese have done more than India to combat their own pollution. Uh, I was in Varanasi a few years ago. It's one of India's holiest cities. People go there, pilgrims go there to bathe in the holy river Ganges. It is polluted like you wouldn't believe from factories upstream. Um, people go to burn their dead bodies there. Sometimes the bodies don't burn all the way. And so there are pieces of corpses swimming in the river. Cows are holy, so they defecate all over the streets. That washes into the river. And in the middle of all that, you have pilgrims swimming, okay? I tell that story not to gross you out <laughs> right before dinner time here, but it shows you how much of a challenge there still is in India. One of Prime Minister Modi's biggest initial initiatives was a toilet initiative. So people no longer have to defecate in the streets, okay? So we're coming from a situation where you've had have a huge population and not the infrastructure to deal with this. Half of the 50 most polluted cities on earth are actually in India, not in China. They think last year there were something like 1.3 million premature deaths in India due to air pollution. So the problems are huge. And the Indians, I think Modi is actually legitimately um, committed to to doing something about climate change. He wrote a book on it when he was what we would call the governor, the chief minister of Gujarat, his home state. Um, but it's always in India rubs up against the poverty issue. And they argue, in my view, rightfully, well, you West have already developed and you're spending so much carbon. Our carbon emissions per capita in the US are something like three times those of India. So now saying, okay, this is the baseline and everybody has to reduce from here isn't entirely fair. So, and I know John Kerry and others are working on more equitable approaches, but it's fair to take that into account, right? Maybe there should be a carbon emission budget per person rather than per country. Um, so that's India. China, it's a little different. And the story I'll tell you, this was actually my husband 
when does a lot of clean energy projects, but as part of it, he visited one of these coal mines in China. And you drive up to this thing, showed me the video, and you just have, imagine a strip mine that's 30 football fields long. Those enormous mining trucks, you know, where the tire is taller than a person, yellow, they look like tiny, tiny toy cars in the distance. And you just feel viscerally that China is going to do everything it needs to do to grow its economy, whether that's mining coal, burning coal, whatever it is. That is tempered by the fact that even though dissent isn't permitted in China, there are about 180,000 protests a year, and a lot of them are over bread and butter issues like this river is polluted. My child got cancer. Where does this come from? So Chinese society wants to live in a cleaner environment and the government is listening. So every communist party official now has a requirement to both grow the economy, but grow it sustainably. And so now when I travel, well, before COVID, no one has been there, but when I traveled around China, people like the local communist party's official would always want to show you this river they cleaned up or this industrial dump site or what they're doing on carbon emissions. And so they're a little farther along than the Indians, but also tempered by this fact that of course their emissions per capita are still lower. So yes, obviously I'm a huge supporter of the Paris Climate Accords, everything we're doing. We need all hands on deck, but I think it's important for an American audience to understand that both Chinese and Indians with some right see this as an issue of equity and they think we've already polluted the world. And so we probably have more of a responsibility to help clean it up. Absolutely. And I've, and I've heard a lot about that uh, from many of my Indian and Chinese friends and just sort of reading all the news articles. Uh, but I want to move on into another topic now. Uh, in your book, published again in 2016, you note that China is a 21st century mercantilist uh, country with a comprehensive strategy of investment, uh, especially regarding uh, spreading its economic influence to poorer countries, whereas India had no strategy, at least in 2016. So I have uh, familial roots in Sri Lanka, and I've observed uh, a lot of Chinese investments in Sri Lanka with the Belt and Road Initiative. I've also started to notice some Indian investments in Sri Lanka and some neighboring countries as well. Uh, has India's lack of a comprehensive strategy, as you described in 2016, has this changed? Is India on track right now in 2021 to have a comprehensive strategy to spread economic influence? Mm -hmm. Good question. And I'd be curious if your view coming, you know, seeing it in Sri Lanka. I do think India has a strategy within its immediate neighborhood. Sri Lanka, Nepal, to some extent, Bangladesh. Obviously, nothing happens with Pakistan because of the historical enmity there. But on the scale, there is nothing in the world that's on the scale of the Belt and Road Initiative that China has put together. So let's just talk about what that is, because in the U.S., it's now you know seen as this. There's a lot of hyperbole around the Belt and Road Initiative. So here's what it is. It is trillions and trillions of dollars of loans, not grants. That's important. Loans to developing economies for infrastructure, both physical, roads, bridges, electricity plants, and digital. And this is actually the most uh, sophisticated part, like Huawei and 5G and, you know, Chinese apps and Chinese, you know, Alipay, et cetera, et cetera. Now, 
some of those loans originally started concessionary, like 0% or 1% interest. They're creeping up towards more market rates because the Chinese are discovering, oh, well, maybe Kazakhstan and Zimbabwe aren't such good credit risks. <laughs> and so the Belt and Road Initiative has been enormously successful, but it also has in it a little bit the seeds of its own demise. And Sri Lanka is a perfect example. And tell me if you agree with this, but in Sri Lanka, you know, the Hamdan Tota port was kind of front and center of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And everyone was terrified that this meant that China is going to control Sri Lanka. Well, a lot of people in Sri Lanka didn't really like it. <laughs> they voted that government out. As, as far as I can tell, and my, my info may be more outdated than yours, but that, that's just a big white elephant. Not much is happening in that port. So that kind of shows the progression of the Belt and Road Initiative in Sri Lanka. And you've seen that in several other countries as well, like South Africa was all in with the Chinese, but now Jacob Zuma is in jail. <laughs> right? So it's, it's been partially successful for the Chinese, but not perfectly. How do you see it in Sri Lanka? Yeah, in Sri Lanka. So, I mean, the government that was voted out in 2015, so that guy's brother came back to power in 2020, but that was really more so due to the I guess the political incompetence of the replacement government, which is a coalition of very, very, very strange bedfellows. And I mean, I, I think on the ground, at least, uh, many folks in the public, it's like a 50-50 sort of split. Many folks do not necessarily like what's happening, but then uh, because the current government sort of has such a staunch following Many of those folks who support that government are willing to buy into whatever that current government says. So it's it's very much, I think, a 50-50. But I, I don't think the folks in the public who may disagree with this stuff have the power to necessarily change it. So it seems like it's veering more towards China. But I mean, again, I, I think it's intensifying the current government. But uh, never know. But it's interesting because Sri Lanka is really like the front lines of this because yeah. it's so close to India. The Indians are terrified that there's going to be a, a Chinese military facility in Sri Lanka. This port, Absolutely. Right? But exactly as you described it, the picture around the world is actually more mixed. Like the Chinese now have a military facility in Djibouti. That's not good because it's, you know, moves right into the Gulf. But the Indians are very worried about what they call the Chinese string of pearls building um, dual use facilities. So things that can be a commercial port and or have military uses all around the periphery of India, <laughs> Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Ecuador. But the idea that you sometimes see in the Western press is hyperbole that, wow, now China owns the developing world that hasn't really panned out. You know, something that really sticks out to me is that, you know, the US, you know, can try to respond to BRI and other kind of, you know, a debt trap diplomacy type of actions by China. Um, but I mean, really, we should be leaning on international institutions because I mean, that is we are far stronger with our allies than without. And so when we look at India and China from the perspective of these international institutions, um, is, is this post-world or post-war kind of liberal order still relevant? Is it outdated? Do we need to kind of think about the global rules that kind of govern um, in order to kind of prepare for the future, whereby we have India and China rising, you know, at a great pace? Good question. Uh, the world order is hopelessly outdated. And no, we should not scrap it. 
until we find something better. <laughs> so that's a lot of what was happening in the Trump administration. And again, in my pessimistic scenario, I said something like, the World Bank and the WTO become basically feckless because no one supports them anymore. And like, wow, we're farther along that path than anybody I think would have hoped. The Biden administration is doing a lot to try to shore up those international institutions. But you've got to remember with all these institutions, they're made up of their member states. And they're only ever going to be as effective as the member states are willing to allow them to be. So people railing against, oh, the UN, well, rail against the member states who aren't making it you know, who aren't um, doing what they agreed to do in the UN charter. Um, you've got to sort of take these institutions one by one, and we don't have time for it, so I'll just do it in short. There is a group of international institutions that like literally and figuratively keep the trains running, keep the planes flying, right? Like international air traffic control standards, all of those things, Intel set, like, all of these things that you don't even know are there because they just work. Those still work okay, by and large. Um, there are other institutions which have ossified, like the World Trade Organization. But as I said in the beginning, this is still the best we have. No one wants to go back to a system where everyone is mercantilist. You saw a little bit of that the last couple of years. Trade wars all over the place. Doesn't help anybody. It would be much more helpful if the world were to say, okay, well, we're going to reform the WTO dispute mechanism so we don't go to, you know, race to the bottom trade wars every time we have a disagreement. Because, by the way, mostly countries actually do what the WTO says when there was a dispute is brought before it and it's adjudicated there. Right. So that's better than not having anything at all. The UN is more difficult because, of course, it's it's the heart of political. But, yes, we need to start reforming these and we need to continue to buy into them rather than just undermining them, which is one of my criticisms of the Trump administration. So as we begin to round out this conversation, uh, given the circumstances of the last five years, uh, do you still believe that the rise of China and India will be peaceful? I mean, we've also seen some anti-democratic trends within India and China. I think we saw it in India with some of the farmers' protests and some of the stuff that's been going on with social media. Uh, with China, Xi Jinping has really started to coalesce power around himself and also the fact that he can serve an extended term now. And uh, even in the US, we've also been having some issues with sort of our democratic processes and stuff. Uh, does that sort of play in to whether? these two countries can actually rise peacefully? Or are you more pessimistic now about that prospect? I am more pessimistic, but it's still possible. So can they both rise peacefully? Yes. Is it harder given what we've all just experienced the last five years? Yes. So I have this friendly debate with Graham Allison, who's my former professor and, and mentor and has this book out, something about doesn't quite say war between China and the U.S. is inevitable, but it hints in that direction. And that's certainly the way it was taken in the press, even though that's not what Graham intended. Um, we've gone down the pessimistic path in the last five years towards more conflict. And it, it's not who's at fault here. All sides are at fault. You know, you didn't just have an America first policy. You had a China first policy. Under Modi, you have an India first policy in the ways that you just mentioned. You know, you've got... Erdogan and Turkey first, you've got Bolsonaro, Brazil first. It just seems to be an uptick in nationalism and authoritarianism in the world. 
So that's a difficult thing that the world has to manage. I can't imagine any U.S. official, maybe a few, but they're not currently in office, and really almost any Chinese official that actually wants a hot war between the U.S. and China. That is a disaster for everyone. So I think people will try to manage away from that, but you're going to continue to see China pushing the envelope. I mean, Hong Kong last summer, Hong Kong is no longer one country, two systems. No way. I talked to friends from there this weekend. There just isn't really legitimate freedom of speech or freedom of the press anymore. It has been absorbed. What did the world do? Nothing. Because what are we going to do? Go to war over Hong Kong? Like you guys wouldn't want to go into conflict. I certainly wouldn't. So we've got to be a little bit careful about the red lines that we draw. I think the next really dangerous flashpoint is Taiwan. That is a dangerous situation that was stable and managed through diplomacy for seven decades, right? You know, one China, but we're not going to say which China it is, the 1992 declarations, and it's all, you know, the Chinese, mainland Chinese keep saying, as Xi Jinping did yesterday in his speech, we want peaceful reunification, and the Taiwanese say nothing. And the U.S. has always acted as a rheostat on that. If one side or the other got too aggressive, we would tamp it down. And, and behind the scenes, we also sometimes tamp down the Taiwanese. Recently, the aggression has come mostly from the mainland Chinese side. And we're throwing all in with the Taiwanese. But you can imagine some really dangerous things here. A full-scale invasion of Taiwan by mainland China, probably unlikely, really difficult to do. But you could imagine something like taking over a couple of the islands that are actually closer to the Chinese mainland, but that are supposed to be Taiwanese. Is Taiwan going to fight over that? And even if they do, are we going to come to their aid? I don't know. You could imagine the Chinese blockading when we, America, sends in um, missiles and other you know, war material into Taiwan, sort of a reverse Cuban missile crisis that would have like us be the aggressor basically and us have to break the blockade. You can imagine economic strangling of Taiwan and trying to change the government there. So there are a lot of really dark scenarios that I know my friends who are currently in the US government are thinking through and worried about, but none of them have a very good resolution. So that's the piece that worries me most. Absolutely, I mean, no one wants a hot war. And so for just one final question, um, really, what what needs to be done? Is it cooperation or is it a show of strength? Do we need to work with our allies, such as India, to build a bulwark, or should we, you know, have try to find areas in which we can cooperate with China, so as to have this mutual interdependence, which we've, you know, basically seen for the past 30, 40 years? I think the Biden administration has this just about right. When you hear Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and others talk about it, they say we're going to cooperate where we can and compete where we must. Now, that sounds like nothing, but it's also practical. So of course we wanna cooperate on things like climate change and we should on clean tech to the extent it's possible. Frankly, we should have cooperated much more on the pandemic. It's too bad that we didn't, vaccines, et cetera. Um, so there still are areas where we can and should cooperate. But it is important, especially with a leader like Xi Jinping, and to a lesser degree, Modi, I'll get to that, to show where we're not willing to be pushed around. And I think sometimes the US 
wants the best and can be a little naive without anyone's intention. Like I'll give you an example. Chinese researchers at US universities, you guys just graduated from U of Chicago. I used to teach at Stanford. The vast majority of Chinese students and researchers are really just in the US to learn and to do the right thing and we should absolutely keep them. However, it is true that Chinese Intel <laughs> made some of those people their sources and there were people downloading stuff from servers of labs and you know things that are spying. And so how do we keep our open societies but push back on things that are clearly beyond the pale? And that's going to have to be a very careful balance. And it doesn't make for a nice bumper sticker like America first, but I think it's the most prudent policy that we should be following. Let me say one final word because we've talked more about China than India. I think, Andre, you know, you noted that um, some aspect of what Modi is doing is going in a more anti-democratic direction. It does worry me. I'll give you one example. I, I give a lot of talks like this. One I did, maybe this was now about a year ago, had a lot of Indians on the line. And I made a statement that would be really mild by US standards saying something like, you know, there's the RSS, which is the far right wing of the BJP. And there have, be some, have been some issues with attacks on Muslims. There was some blaming Muslims for the beginnings of the pandemic. That was unfair. There's been a real crackdown in Kashmir. So there are some, not that India will not be a democracy, it is a democracy, but there's a little bit of freedom of expression and freedom of religion that's fraying at the edges. For those mild comments, I got hate mail. <laughs> you wouldn't believe <laughs> how dare she criticize India and, you know, Modi's. And it's very interesting because if as friends, we can't support and quietly help each other, even when we're making mistakes, are we really good friends? And so that's what I would say about India and the peaceful rise of India. On that note, Anya, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, your book, This Brave New World, is a fantastic primer on India and China. Folks, if you're trying to learn more about uh, these two countries, and like as a first sort of step towards learning about these two countries, this is the perfect book uh, to read about that. Anya, I, I hope you sort of uh, write another book about this topic, especially because, I mean, geopolitics constantly changing, right? <laughs> but still a very valuable book. I learned a lot reading it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. You're fantastic. And thanks for doing this podcast. It's really informative. Everyone should listen. <laughs> thanks. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at Burnbag Pod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burnbag Podcast.